The information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hi, and welcome to the APTA Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast. Um, the podcast we'll be discussing today is vestibular function and diagnostic testing. My name is Nikki DeSalvio. I'm a physical therapist that works at Rancho Los Amigos and also USC. Um, I'm today, I'm joined by two experts in the topics, Dr. Elena Bassett and Dr. Jesse Patterson. Dr. Elena Bassett received her AUD and PhD from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2016 and 2018, respectively. She is currently an assistant professor of clinical otolaryngology, head and neck surgery in the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, and an audiologist in the Caruso Department of Otolaryngology. Serving as the director of the USC Balance Center, she specializes in the assessment of multidisciplinary management for patients with concerns of dizziness and imbalance across the lifespan. Her current line of research is focused on the impact of chronic illness on balance function, the aging vestibular system, and fall prevention protocols within medical settings. Dr. Jesse Patterson received her AUD and PhD from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2014 and 2016, respectively. While at UNL, her research was focused on sports-related concussion. She is currently a senior audiology research associate at Boystown National Research Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. She spends half the week performing diagnostic vestibular and audiology services to patients across the lifespan, aged six months and above. She spends her remaining time in research-related activities within the Vestibular Imbalance Research Laboratory. The current line of research is focused on examining the effects of vestibular loss in children. I'd like to welcome Dr. Bassett and Dr. Patterson. Thank you for, Thank having, you us. for having us. So to start discussion, um, we'll briefly review uh, the anatomy of the vestibular apparatus. Great. Um, so the vestibular system, we have five rate sensors on each side. These rate sensors help us know where we are in space at all times. Um, so we have three semicircular canals, the horizontal, the superior, and the posterior canals. And these are important for angular acceleration, so moving our head side to side, up and down. Then we have the two otolith organs, the utricle and the saccule, that are more appropriate for linear acceleration. So going in a car, on an elevator, things like that, um, and really important for helping us stay upright. These organs are innervated um, by two branches of the vestibular nerve. So we have the superior branch that innervates the horizontal semicircular canal, the superior semicircular canal, and the utricle. And we have the inferior branch that innervates the posterior canal as well as the saccule. And understanding that these organs are innervated by two different branches of the nerves really comes into an important part when we talk about um, our vestibular diagnostic testing because certain tests look at certain branches of the nerve and certain organs. Um, and we don't have one test that really tells us about the entire system. So we're constantly having to piece things together to determine how each organ and each branch of the nerve are working. Um, with the inner ear, we have um, kind of our two biggest reflexes that help us 
um, stay upright as well as know where we are in space at all times. The biggest one is the um, VOR, the vestibulo-ocular reflex. And this is gonna be one that uh, physical therapists use a lot in their rehab. And we also use a lot in our diagnostic testing. So each of our semicircular canals, as well as both otolith organs, when we stimulate one side, so the left and the right side are constantly working in a push-pull manner. So as one side excites, the other ear inhibits, and this information travels up um, the vestibular nerve to the vestibular nucleus to control eye movements that create an equal and opposite movement. So when we turn our head to the left, our eyes should go equal and opposite to the right to maintain our fixation on a target to allow for clear visual imaging of the world around us. Um, if the inner ear is not working appropriately, then when we turn our head to the left, our eyes actually drift with our head to the left and then have to make a corrective saccade to get back on the target. And Patients may refer to this as visual blurring, um, things kind of bobbing, all of that because their ears are not sending the appropriate information up to the level of the ocular motor nucleus to control eye movement. We also have the vestibulospinal reflex, um, which is going to be really important for keeping us upright. So information from our ears is actually sent down to our lower extremities to keep us upright and correct any falling reflex or anything like that. Um, so that's a kind of a brief overview of our inner ears um, and how that plays a part into our diagnostic testing. Great, thank you for the overview and sort of moving right into there, what are the main diagnosis tests that we can use um, to actually test vestibular function? So like Jesse said, our goal in our vestibular assessment protocol is to determine what portions of the system are functioning and what portions of the system may be registering information in an abnormal way. And in doing so, we are trying to determine the central and peripheral function of the system. So looking at the central pathways within the brain that are connecting our visual system and our balance organs, as well as looking at the peripheral function of the organs themselves for any abnormalities that may appear within the system. And during our assessment protocol, we really strive in our initial like gold standard test to perform an ENG or a VNG. So an ENG or a VNG are either electro-nystagmography or video-nystagmography. And the difference between these two, the difference in the naming of this test is actually dependent on the recording mechanism. In electro-nystagmography, electrodes are placed on the face in order to capture um, eye movement, while in video-nystagmography, there's actually a pair of video goggles that the patient wears in order to record abnormal eye movement. And within that ENG or VNG protocol, we have an ocular motor test battery, which allows us to look at gaze or um, gaze testing, which allows us to look at central and peripheral vestibular function, smooth pursuit testing, which gives us an idea of the vestibular cerebellum, saccade testing, which allows us to look at the accuracy related to the posterior vermis of the cerebellum or latency and velocity related to the pontine reticular formation of the brainstem. 
uh, positioning of the patient, which are also known as our Dix Hall Pike maneuvers, looking at benign proximal positional vertigo um, in the superior and posterior canal, or roll testing, which allows to look at it in the horizontal canal, as well as positionals, which allow us to look at the relationship of gravity to the balance organs while a patient is staying still. At the end of the VNG or ENG battery, patients will often complete caloric irrigation, which can be done with an air or water stimulus. And that's looking at how the horizontal semicircular canal responds to a temperature change within the system. In that battery, warm or cool water or air will be placed inside of the patient's ear canal, and we anticipate that the balance organs will, or the horizontal semicircular canal will respond accordingly with cool or cool air causing an opposite response of the ear that is irrigated. So if the water was cold and placed in the right ear, we would anticipate a left beating eye movement and warm air causing eye movement in the same direction of the ear that was irrigated. So if warm water was placed in the right ear, we would anticipate a right beating nystagmus or movement of the eyes. Outside of the traditional test battery, patients may also complete additional assessment to allow us to look at other portions of the vestibular system. A VEMP test or vestibular evoked myogenic potential is a electrophysiologic test that actually looks at a sonomotor response of our vestibular system as it relates to the utricle and the saccule. Um, patients listen to an acoustic stimuli and we're able to record um, muscle, musculature response from the sternocleidomastoid in the cervical VEMP and um, muscular response from the muscles around the eyes in the ocular vent. Our cervical vent is designed to allow us to look at the function of the saccule, and our ocular vent is, is designed and allow us to, to allow us to look at the function of the utricle. Um, another test that a patient may complete is a rotary chair, which actually allows us to look at the mid-frequencies of the horizontal canal, which is a different type of frequency span as compared to calorics which is heavily focused on the low frequencies. And recently added to the test battery is actually V-HIT, or the Video Head Impulse Test, which allows us to quantify the eye movement that we may see with patients in our head thrust test. So this test is a pair of goggles that a patient wears, and their eye movements are recorded as they focus on a target, as the provider obviously um, moves the patient's head in a variety of different correct directions. In doing so, we can look at all of the semicircular canals. Um, with our test battery as a whole, like Jesse indicated, to start in dividing up the different portions of the vestibular system, we can start to think about the innervation of the superior nerve, how is our horizontal semicircular canal responding? How is our anterior semicircular canal responding? How is our utricle responding? As well as the inferior nerve with our posterior canal and our saccule, how their responses are being registered as well. So dividing it up based on nerve innervation as well as based on ear-specific information. Jessie, do you have you. anything to add? <laughs> no, I think that's everything that co that covers it actually um in re results um to your v hit you mentioned 
Uh, we had some questions about accuracy between caloric testing and VHIT. Um, if you guys could talk a little bit about the differences in their capabilities and if there's one that you recommend compared to the other. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so VHIT is relatively a newer test compared to our VNG with caloric. Um, within the last, oh, about, I guess it's been almost six or seven years now. Um, but we're still learning a lot about it. Um, the VHIT in comparison to caloric is not as sensitive as finding or at finding a unilateral weakness. Um, so actually the research out there shows that you need a unilateral weakness on caloric of about 42% to see a positive um, VHIT. So we consider a significant caloric weakness at um, greater than 25%, which is pretty consistent with most um, clinics. It's usually anywhere from 25 to 30%, depending on their own norms that they've collected. Um, so sometimes we get mild weaknesses and the hit is normal. So in our clinic, we have not, and I would say most clinics are not replacing caloric with the hit yet. I think that is a goal because calorics are not a very pleasant test for patients, um, but we're just not there yet. We're still trying to interpret, um, really understand when specific reset saccades are important. So right now when we interpret our results, we need the presence of reset saccades either happening covert or overt. So covert is happening during the head movements and over is happening after the head movement. And those saccades are visible to the naked eye. The covert saccades, you have to have the um, video recording to see. So understanding how large those have to be, um, really understanding how frequent they have to be during the head impulses um, in relationship to the gain. So right now we expect there should be reset saccades and a low gain but there's research out there showing that maybe normal gain and some reset the cuts might mean something for specific disorders. So there's still a lot to be learned about the hit and how it incorporates into our clinic. We do use it though in our clinic. So we might start with that with a patient and if it's abnormal, then we don't do caloric because we know that there's a difference. We know that there's um, a weakness on one side, or maybe it's a bilateral, we can pull it out on that. Um, and so we won't put a patient through caloric if we get enough information from VHIT. But if it's normal, then we continue on with caloric just to make sure we're not missing something. Um, it's also really helpful for the clinic populations that can't have caloric done. So if they have a hole in their eardrum and we don't have air caloric. If we have to use water caloric, we're not going to put water into the ear because that's not safe. Um, so it's great for that population. There are some populations that just will not tolerate caloric, so we can get at least some information about the inner ear. Um, again, sometimes we can't rule out a small asymmetry um, if the hit is normal, um, but it's helpful in those situations. And helpful using in kids that aren't quite ready to do caloric, um, people that have had significant middle ear surgery where we can't really compare the two sides because a big middle ear surgery is going to change how the temperature moves from the ear canal into the inner ear. 
and it's going to influence results separate from how the actual vestibular system is working. So it's definitely helpful. It has really added a lot to our clinical test battery as it's also the only test that um, allows us to look at the superior and posterior canal function too. But it's not quite in a spot where we're ready to have it replace Clorox yet. And I think adding on to Jesse's points here is that when we think about the V-HIT in terms of the horizontal canal, it's actually accessing a higher frequency range as compared to our caloric assessment. And for some patient populations, like Jesse had mentioned, this frequency range may be normal, but then we'll see abnormal results on calorics as we're tapping into a different portion of the system. So a normal V-HIT doesn't necessarily mean that we can rule out peripheral involvement. It just means at the tested frequencies, we did not see any abnormalities of the VOR at that point in time. Thank you for distinguishing um, that. It's always exciting to see the new technology, but to really understand its limitations and strengths is very helpful as a clinician. Did you have something else to add? No, I was just thinking that VHID has definitely added a dynamic component to our test battery and lets us look at the system in a more complete way as compared to what was available to us before. In regards to the other methods that you guys are using in your diagnostic testing, um, how accurate would you say they are in diagnosing vestibular disorders? With our test battery, we are able to say that the one, the tests that have been around the longest have the most research and most clinical use to determine their accuracy in diagnosing vestibular impairment, and that would be our uh, VNG testing as well as calorics. But even within those test batteries, there is room for error um, in regards to the patient has to be compliant to a pre-test battery in order for our results to be most successful. And that could, within that test battery, I mean, excuse me, within that preparation for the test, it includes refraining from prescription medications that may serve as vestibular suppressants. It includes refraining from the consumption of alcohol um, prior to your test assessment. And you really need compliance of the patient throughout the test battery to get accurate results. Um, so it's a long battery for some patients and it can be very challenging in regards to the fact that it can bring up symptoms of nausea or discomfort throughout the battery. So it takes a clinician um, a period of time to develop the skills and the tools necessary in order to support a patient through the assessment. So actually in talking about preparing patients for testing, a lot of times as clinicians we may recommend that um, a patient would seek additional testing, uh, but don't always know what to tell them to expect. If you could kind of just describe how a typical, a typical vestibular testing session would look, how long it may take, um, to give us a better idea of how to better prepare our patients, but also so that we have an idea of what all goes into a testing day. So I think we, I tapped into this a little bit in the last question when I mentioned that it is a longer assessment of tests. And obviously when I spoke through the main diagnostic test, there are a lot of different things that we can do within a test battery. 
Um, so typically the appointments can be 90 minutes to two hours in duration. And for that period of time, it's important to um, let patients know that during this assessment, symptoms may be provoked in a couple of the tests, but they should not be symptomatic throughout the entire test battery. The two main tests that could provoke symptoms for patients of increased dizziness or perhaps nausea include rotary chair because it is a full body movement um, in a darkened space, which can often uh, trigger an increase in symptoms, or calorics, considering that we are placing a stimulus that is intended to trigger the vestibular system um, into the patient's ear, it can cause increased sensations of dizziness or unsteadiness for a period of time. But I think it's important to let patients know that it is a controlled stimulus. And when the temperature of the balance organs return back to their normal baseline function, the sensations of dizziness and unsteadiness will stop. Um, or be significantly reduced. And calorics are always the last thing that we do um, in case a patient does have an adverse response to the stimuli. But a typical vestibular assessment requires a referral from a physician. And once that is acquired, um, a patient could go through a case history of their dizziness, talking about their symptoms of dizziness and unsteadiness, as well as how these current symptoms today compare to previous symptoms, because obviously perhaps there's been a period of time in between their initial onset of dizziness to the point where they're visiting with us. Uh, a simple bedside di diagnostic assessment, so doing some simple measures to decide which test would be appropriate within the battery. But typically, a patient may undergo VEMPS, so the vestibular evoked myogenic potential, so we have an idea of utricular function, of VNG, and calorics. And depending on your clinic site or the needs of the patient, uh, they may also undergo audiometric testing if we're suspicious that the patient has Meniere's disease or possibly labyrinthitis, um, or patients may undergo additional vestibular assessment like V-HIT or rotary chair. Thank you. Uh, That's, um, really yeah. great. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say V-HIT and rotary chair um, may be site-specific, uh, just depending on the resources of the audiologist that you work with. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, as a lot of times patients will ask us what to expect and just to give them an idea of, you know, the duration of the visit and when they may or may not feel symptomatic um, and to know that it is very controlled and you guys are very well trained in what you're doing. So everything will be safe for them. Um, but just to kind of give them a little prep work so that when they come in and see you, nothing is a surprise. Um, but in speaking about after actually completing the diagnostic testing, sometimes uh, clinicians will receive results and not really know how to interpret them. So I was wondering if you guys could review some key points. Uh, if a clinician were able to see uh, your raw results or a report, um, what they can do to understand what that means about their patients. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the way... Um, we format our reports and Elena does the same. And I think most audiologists performing vestibular testing have been trained to report um, the results is to indicate whether there was one, any signs of central abnormalities. Um, and if so, what were they and where do they localize to? 
um, this is going to be important so that we know if they need to have a referral on to get further testing done, um, MRI, anything like that to look at that. Um, that's also going to be helpful for the physical therapist to know because treating someone with central indicators is much different than treating someone with a peripheral loss. Um, and that includes the exercises as well as the overall prognosis of what you can do to help them. Um, and then the next thing is saying, was there any signs of peripheral um, dysfunction? So was there a weakness on one side? And the big thing you're going to be looking for, um, most clinicians that are doing vestibular testing, the number one test they're going to do is that VNG, ENG with caloric testing. Not every clinic is going to have any other tests to do, like VEMS or VHIT or rotary chair, but they're doing the VNG. So you're going to look for, is there a caloric weakness? Um, again, most norms are greater than 25%. It's considered um, a significant asymmetry between the two ears, but the report should indicate whether this was significant or not. And it should say what side is involved. So then you know what side is the weaker side. You should be looking for things um, to uh, indicate whether that weakness is actually compensated. So signs of compensation would be the absence of nystagmus. So if they're still having gaze evoke nystagmus, post head shake nystagmus, positional nystagmus, then they are not compensated physiologically for eye movement. So there's still a bias in the vestibular system where the brain has not been able to compensate, compensate physiologically. Um, once those eye movements go away, then you can say that they are compensated physiologically for eye movements. So you're looking for which side is weaker and then if it's compensated at that time. Then you guys would be using more information to find out if they're functionally compensated. Some audiologists do perform some more functional tests, um, including computerized dynamic posturography, which I'm sure you guys are all very familiar with and dynamic visual acuity, but not every clinic is doing it and most audiologists aren't really doing it because we don't get reimbursed as well for those things like you guys do. Um, so we leave more of the functional assessment to you guys to determine compensation. Um, and then other things in the um, interpretation, we talk about um, whether there was any indication of BPPV. So we're always checking for that and always saying yes or no, there was any indication of that because it is so common. We want that to be very clear, especially when some of these reports are going back to um, their internal med docs who um, don't always know when it's BPPV and when it's not. So we like to make it very clear if it is or isn't for them. Um, you guys are much more familiar with that, but that way then you can see that we've checked that and it's negative or positive. Um, so those are the big things diagnostically to look at um, for us to help you guys determine the most appropriate therapy strategy and kind of help put together your functional portion as well. And then we'll also include any other recommendations to make sure that they're getting any further testing that needs to be done um, and seeing any other um, medical practitioners that might be beneficial. 
And one other thing I kind of forgot to mention too is that we often say um, what signs or what indications of fall prevention a patient might have too. Um, we, for a while, we were required to report those things, and I think a lot of clinicians still just are very good about what puts someone at risk of falling and letting that be known too. So if we need to work on fall prevention, that can be done too. Thank you. Those all would be very helpful to see um, in a report as a clinician, especially with the screening of BTVV, um, and to really understand that you guys have put many thoughts into these tests and have results that can absolutely help us guide our practice and understanding what those results are. Um, Dr. Bassett, did you have anything to add to that question? I would say, following up on Jesse's um, comments there, that definitely not only are we looking just at the diagnostic test battery for the vestibular system, but really thinking of the balance system as a whole. So trying to collect as much information about the patient's visual system as well as their sensation in their feet and ankles um, to determine once they leave our clinical practice, how are they able to move through the world in a safe way. So that fall risk and fall prevention component is uh, one way that we can help guide patients to the right services. Thank you for adding that. That's very important as well in our um, in our clinical battery. Um, so having any in additional information coming in is incredibly helpful. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about one specific vestibular disorder uh, in Meniere's disease and see your thoughts on if echocardiography is helpful in affirming Meniere's disease. So for Meniere's disease, we think of a classical presentation of auditory and vestibular system, or excuse me, auditory and vestibular symptoms. Um, with that, we think of patients reporting oral fullness, meaning that their ear feels full or plugged um, to one side, sensations of roaring tinnitus, um, as well as fluctuations in hearing. And with that, the sensation of vertigo or increased dizziness and unsteadiness. So those are the case history components that we listen for from patients um, in order to elicit possibly ordering uh, electrocochleography. And electrocochleography is an evoked potential where um, patients actually listen to a sound stimuli. And our goal is to record the response from the nervous system, in particular the auditory nerve, to this sound stimulus. And with that, we're looking at an electrophysiologic response that has three components, but two of them are most, two of them of the most interest are the summiting potential and then the ultimate action potential. And the summiting potential is the um, response that we perceive is from the organ of cordy, the hair cells, and that action potential we assume is from the firing of thousands of auditory nerve fibers. And it has been shown in the literature that patients with Meniere's disease actually have a change in the presentation of the summiting potential and the action potential in regards to their relationship, where there is a um, enlarged amplitude 
of the summating potential as compared to the amplitude of the action potential. So they're closer together, to say, or their peaks are closer together um, in space. And with that, it's assumed that that occurs because of the high drops or the um, volume of that endolymphatic buildup change in the characteristics of the basilar membrane. So ECOG was designed in a way to give us an objective measure of what is happening within the auditory and vestibular system in the nearest disease. Um, with that being said, ECOG is one measure that can be used in a variety of measures and should never really be the standalone diagnostic assessment for a patient with Meniere's. And Jesse, do you have an additional, you have additional commentary on this as well um, from your clinical practice? I do. Um, so I can only speak for our clinical practice, but we do not do ECOGs at all. Um, if someone's referred for them, we tell them that we don't do that testing. Um, instead, we use uh, some different testing to piece together um, the possibility of Meniere's disease. So as Elena mentioned, there's a huge auditory and vestibular portion. So these patients definitely have an audiogram done. So we're looking for hearing loss and specifically it's more of a low frequency hearing loss um, that's associated with Meniere's. And then they get a vestibular evaluation. So we perform V-HIT on them, them, and a VNG with caloric. Um, and we piece together particular patterns throughout all of these tests in combination with their thorough case history, which is really almost the best way to diagnose Meniere's disease, um, looking for that sudden onset of true spinning, roaring tinnitus, muffled hearing, symptoms lasting at least 20 minutes, but never more than 24 hours in duration. Um, those are going to be big symptoms that we're looking at. Um, and then V-HIT for someone with Meniere's disease should be normal. So their VOR should be intact. Then we do VEMS. And what we do with VEMS is, so healthy adults and children, um, their VEMP response is best at around 500 hertz. So we typically put the stimulus for them at 500 hertz. Um, someone with Meniere's disease actually has better tuning to 1,000 hertz. So we perform VEMS at 500 and 1,000 hertz to uh, look at the ratio between the two to see how much better they're responding at 1,000 hertz compared to 500. And then we do the VNG, and throughout the VNG, we're looking at any nystagmus patterns that's suggesting more of an irritative lesion. So as you all likely know, nystagmus beats towards the more active neural side, so we should be seeing the nystagmus beating towards the suspected ear throughout. Um, and then we actually do, on caloric, get a caloric weakness. But this is not due to um, actual reduction in the 
um, like nerve itself or anything like that. But the um, high drops over time actually change the horizontal canal. And then the canal itself has a harder time changing to the temperature changes. So it actually shows up with a caloric weakness. Yet all the nystagmus is beating towards um, that side, suggesting it's an irritative lesion. So you use those things on combination. We use our vents, which aren't perfect either, just like ECOG. And then we show that we might have a caloric weakness, but the hit looks good too. So we kind of use a combination of those. And I'll even say that that's not perfect all the time. And we work with our physicians on then trying to kind of go more on case history and then also maybe trying some dietary management to see if that can control it in some cases if we're not really sure um, and going that route first. But we do not use ECOG at all in our clinic anymore. And ECOG is we're rarely using it in our practice as well. And like Jesse said, there's a heavy dependence and understanding of the path that Meniere's disease takes and looking for those features within the patient's reported case history, as well as within your diagnostic assessment. And sometimes it may take time with these patients, monitoring them over uh, the onset of their symptoms to ultimately the final diagnosis in order to see how this type of um, insult presents for them. But with Meniere's disease, um, it's definitely something that I find a lot of my patients come in and say that at some point in time when they started to experience their symptoms of dizziness, they were diagnosed with it. Um, so with that, there's a heavy patient education component that I try to push forward, really discussing what the symptoms of Meniere's disease look like and making sure patients are aware, are aware of those so they can better, so they can start to better understand what Meniere's would be and start to pick apart their symptoms in a way to see if they really fall into that category and better communicate it to their healthcare professionals. Yeah, I would agree that a large portion of patients have been diagnosed with that or BPPV before coming to see us. Um, and we use it as a good educational of, well, this is how this presents. And then they realize that that is nothing like their symptoms. So they almost feel relieved, which is nice. Yeah, I think, I mean, in talking about the patient education component, I think that it is important to provide patients the language to better help them describe their symptoms of dizziness because often it's such a unique phenomenon for each person that could be difficult for them to put to words the type of experience that they are having when they are having symptoms of dizziness or even how to quantify it in minutes to hours or to think about if they've ever experienced anything like that before. So that's where your case history is, is like really a crucial part of the evaluation in order to guide your diagnostic hypotheses at the end of the day and hopefully connect the patient to the resources that they need um, outside of the vestibular assessment or outside of physical therapy. Thank you. That's a, you know, really great point to make that um, at times 
patients may come in with a diagnosis they were given, um, but after further testing and further exploration, uh, may realize that those are not the results that they're having, and to just really be able to speak to patients um, and let them know exactly what you're doing, what that means, and how that can guide a diagnosis, and then overall treatment um, is really important in how they manage their symptoms and really how they respond to all the therapies. So we definitely appreciate you guys taking the time to educate them on the results and to really let them know what to expect and how their symptoms may present or change over time. Um, but a population we haven't had a chance to talk too much about is actually specifically in children. So I was hoping you guys could talk a little bit about the impact of vestibular loss in children specifically. Yeah, so um, children, that is actually um, an area that I work with often. Um, both in the clinic and in research. So clinically, we see um, kids that have hearing loss, um, and we test them for vestibular loss as young as six months of age um, to see if that can help us identify the etiology of the hearing loss. So there's certain etiologies of hearing loss that have known vestibular loss associated with them and some that don't. Um, and so we're often trying to find out what the cause of a child's hearing loss is. So we also want to look to see if they have any vestibular loss. So we do um, vestibular testing as young as six months. As long as they're able to hold their head upright, these kids can get into the rotary chair. As um, Elena described earlier, they can sit in a car seat. They can sit in mom and dad's lap. Um, and we measure the nystagmus when the chair moves to and fro to see if they have good vestibular function. Um, and as they get older, we can start incorporating them at around um, three years old, be hit at about five-ish, um, and then they can do more comprehensive VNGs and everything at around seven years old um, is when they can start tolerating calorics and things like that. But there's some kids that at five can handle that. But we um, in the research lab have started to really look at um, what happens with these kids with vestibular loss. So we know that kids with vestibular loss are delayed in meeting their gross motor milestones of sitting and walking. Um, and those can be um, risk factors for bringing kids in for vestibular testing. So if they're sitting after independently after eight to nine months, walking after 15 months, that can be concern for vestibular loss. Um, and there's always some kids that are just gonna be later, but it's always a risk factor. Um, and previously, uh, we've thought that, okay, these kids, they're really um, able to just compensate on their own, Kids are kind of resilient, and they end up catching up to their peers. And often more gross motor, they do for the most part. Um, we have shown that just doing, you know, standing balance tasks, they still struggle. Um, how much that impacts their everyday, it's hard to say. But we're also finding that the vestibular loss can affect things more academically. So, they need larger print size to read. They um, have lower academic scores. So we know kids with hearing loss 
have a little bit lower language um, and reading scores, depending on how much they're wearing their hearing aids or cochlear implant. Um, but even further down from kids with just hearing loss and normal vestibular function, those kids with hearing loss and vestibular loss actually have poor function, poor performance. So there's something that's causing them to not do as well as their peers. Um, so we're looking at right now, what are those mechanisms? Because if they're reading, their head should be still, they should be able to do pretty good, but they're still struggling. So there's still something with the vestibular loss that is impacting those skills. So we're trying to make a big push that um, kids with vestibular loss really need to get um, physical therapy. They need to get some intervention. And that's really been on the past focused on just, you know, standing balance, making sure their gross motor is intact, things like that. But now we're seeing that we really should be focusing on the VOR exercises in these kids as well. And I don't think it's really been a big priority. Um, and again, because we always thought that they caught up to their peers once they're in school, but we're learning that's not the case. So we're still trying to figure out the best route of intervention um, and things like that. But I think we're moving in the right direction so understanding that kids with vestibular loss are not necessarily just going to catch up on their own, that they really need physical therapy is really important. And I think Jesse taps into a good point here when we talk about pediatric vestibular loss in the sense that we're still learning so much about this population. And it's really a, it's a growing field diagnostically for audiologists. So if it may not be popular in your area of practice, but that doesn't mean that it is not maybe necessary in the population that you serve. So hopefully being able to find providers that are able to offer this research to you, um, especially if you have children on your caseload where you are suspicious that perhaps there's something a little bit more going on in regards to their balance function outside of what they've been uh, diagnosed with coming into your clinic. Thank you. That's a great point to bring up that, um, you know, there's a lot of up and coming research out there um, in working with children and to just be on the horizon for any new treatment methods um, or diagnostics that can better help serve this population, um, but that we are still learning and that we're going to keep striving to push forward to find the most optimal treatments for these children. Um, did either of you have any final thoughts uh, about uh, vestibular function or testing as a whole? I think mm. that I just want to say thank you to all of the physical therapists out that, there that are treating these patients because it's such a huge help to these patients. I emphasize that to all my patients that are getting referred, um, that it is the best resource out there for them. So I really appreciate the physical therapists that are um, able to use our results and use that to help you treat the patients and do your job because it's so important to helping our patients. And sometimes, or a lot of our times that this is the only thing that's gonna help the patient. There's no real medical treatment for it other than physical therapy. So. 
I really appreciate all the physical therapists out there doing this. And I, I echo that from Jesse as well. Often at the end of my diagnostic assessment, I'll go over a recap of the results. And after recapping the results, my next sentence is, and there is a type of physical therapy that can help you with your symptoms. And really spending time to introduce the importance of this type of rehabilitation uh, for patients and talking about the long-term goals and outcomes for these patients to get them back to the activities that they enjoy and to know that although they may be experiencing symptoms now that seem debilitating or limiting, there is an opportunity for them to start to get their life back. So um, the diagnostic assessment is just one step to inform the intervention that you guys provide and our patients are so thankful to hear that there is a resource and a profession that is willing to help them. So thank you. Well, thank you both. We certainly appreciate, uh, you know, your confidence in physical therapy and your education to patients um, that will be receiving physical therapy as to how it will benefit them. Um, and that in the long run, um, while it may not be fun up front and may provoke some symptoms that there is uh, hope for them to feel better uh, with continuing through a program. Um, and we appreciate the relationships we have with all our audiologists and the time you guys take to complete the testing and work with our patients and are truly dedicated to helping them feel better and live their lives to their fullest. Um, so I just really want to thank you both and especially for your time and sharing your expertise with all our listeners and to really just help elevate the clinical practice and management of any patient with a vestibular loss at this time. So thank you very much for joining us tonight, and we hope to see you guys on future episodes. Thanks. Yes, thank you for having us. All right. Thank you. You too.